Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Inside Asia podcast from the Center for Asian Democracy at the University of Louisville. This is Dave Buckley, CAD's director, and Paul Weber, endowed chair of politics, science, and religion here at UofL. I'm alone tonight on the interviewer side of the mic while Dr. Ashani Dasgupta is off in the field doing uh, the fun part and also the important part of her own work. Um, thanks to the great leadership of our colleague, Tori Dahl, CAD's podcast channel is freshened up. Episodes are accessible on our website through the University of Louisville, as well as through Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search Center for Asian Democracy. Subscribe, review, and stay up to date on future content. We're joined tonight, uh, even though I'm by myself, because it's a, such an important period in democracy uh, in one of Southeast Asia's most important countries, Thailand. We'll be talking with Dr. Janjira Sambatpunsiri um, about the upcoming election that's taking place just this coming weekend. Dr. Sambatpunsiri is assistant professor um, at uh, Chulalongkorn University in Thailand, where she's project leader at the Monitoring Center on Organized Violence Events. Uh, she's also a research fellow at the German Institute for Global and Area Studies. Um, her own research focuses on challenges and opportunities facing democracy in Thailand, with particular focus on topics including political protest, the role of digital politics uh, and political repression in the country, and the growth of Buddhist nationalism in the country and in the region as a whole. Um, as you'll hear in our conversation, uh, on May 14, 2023, voters in Thailand will head to the polls for national elections. These elections mark the latest stage in the country's turbulent politics, pitting allies of the military against opposition parties, um, probably most prominently uh, those linked to exiled former Prime Minister Thaksin Sinaratra. Uh, there are newer parties also, especially the Move Forward Party, who in this election will try to break through this polarization, uh, especially with appeals to urbanized younger voters. Um, there's a great pre-election briefing on CAD's website by our graduate research associate, Tori Dahl, that's also just published. Uh, check it out for more details on uh, the background dynamics of this election, as well as some of the polling numbers um, and regional dynamics that will shape this election. So without any further ado, let's get right to my conversation with Jajira. All right, so Dr. Janjira Sambapunsuri, thanks so much for joining us this morning and evening. Pleasure is mine. Thanks for inviting me. Okay, um, well, obviously, this is a very busy time in your part of the world um, because of the event that has Thailand back in global headlines, uh, the country's May 14th election. Um, first, can you maybe just briefly get us up to speed on who are the major players uh, going into this election season? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can think of um, these political parties as representing two major ideological poles, right? On the one hand, you have these all powers um, that represent um, uh, Thai nationalism, conservatism, um, uh, the preference for um, uh, constitutional monarchy as a form of governance, so on and so forth. And so that is, um, uh, you know, all powers. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have uh, new powers. Um, some of the parties not new anymore, but these are the parties that envision Thailand as uh, more equal um, economically and socially. Um, and um, they uh, prefer a less authoritarian uh, political structure. Um, and basically you can say that they are progressive cap, right? But I think I, I would not um, my own um, uh, take on this is not to see this as dichotomy because you have parties that 
stand on the extreme ends of the spectrum, but then there are those in between, right? So I would say that you have move forward representing the progressive camp and then the um the one of the ruling parties um uh is I mean let's just say that this is uh the party that uh, split from the ruling party and is now led by uh the current prime minister so, so that's the, the, the other extreme end, royalist um, conservative end, right? And in between, you have a rather kind of central centric conservative, uh, which is the current ruling party, and then Huyatai. So these are the four main parties. But I think to make it simple uh, for our audience here, you just have to imagine these two ideological poles, progressive yeah, and conservative, yeah. Yeah, so, so the most recent opinion polls anyway seem to show that those two main opposition parties or the more sort of progressive parties, uh, pro-Thai and, and move forward party, are running well in front of other parties in the country, uh, more closely tied to the to the military. Um, but it's very possible that the election uh, this weekend will not actually deliver an immediate clear win for the opposition. Um, can you just explain for us a little bit um, how it is um, that the prime minister in Thailand is actually selected after the election and why that might contribute to, uh, to a, a result that's kind of inconclusive in some post-election negotiations among the parties? Um, well, I mean, they are, the election we're having is um, lower house, right, parliament, um, uh, members of the parliament. Then um, normally in, in a normal um, uh, parliamentarian uh, system, you would have elected MPs. Um, what, uh, the, uh, the party that got the most votes, they would select um, uh prime minister candidate to nominate a prime minister candidate to be the prime minister. And so, so the party um, that is now leading the poll um, is Queer Thai, um, which used to govern Thailand twice, or actually more, <laughs> but then they got uh, overthrown at some point. Um, but um, they, 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 they have a good track record for uh, constituents, but then, you know, they could form uh, the government with actually either um, another progressive party, which is move forward, or they could go towards a more conservative spectrum, right? They could form a party with the current ruling party um, and other smaller um, parties, right? And so um, what's interesting is that um, after the election, um, there would be a lot of discussions about this, you know, forming this uh, uh, governing coalition likelihood for Pua Thai, um, and I, you know, I just don't want to be so sure about that because it's politics, right? Um, but I think the likelihood for Pua Thai is that it wouldn't form the coalition with Move Forward. Because I think Pua Thai has experienced um, political backstabbing in the past. And I think that to form the coalition with Move Forward is too dangerous for the party. Because Move Forward is seen by the elites as the threat. To the status quo, right? So that's that's one scenario. But the wild card is the the Senate. As I said, in a normal parliamentarian um, system, the Senate should be elected and should actually uh, serve the interests of the constituents, right? But in Thailand, and as with Myanmar and some other autocratic countries, the Senate were handpicked 
during um, the, the military government that lasts from 14 um, until 19 in Thailand, right? So the, the Senate was handpicked um, and therefore the tendency of the Senate is to vote for um, the establishment, for the conservative royalist uh, spectrum. Right, so um, that's the wild card, and that makes it possible for um, the ruling party to stay in power despite not having a decisive majority of the votes. Um, and it, there's some speculation that the current prime minister could stay in power as well, but we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, no, we'll see. Um, it's, um, you know, in some ways, you, you've written about uh, the polarization in the country over the past 20 years or so. Um, you know, the, the images of the red shirt and the yellow shirt protests are probably pretty well known to our to our audience. Um, but you just talked there about potential sort of even coalition building um, between potentially um and sort of parties that are more aligned to the military. Is this a sign that, they, like, is that polarization fading in Thai society or no? Um, I, I would say that the polarization is, it's not fading, it's always there. The roots are there, but I think it's shifted. Um, the issue, the cleavage has shifted over the past year. So, so uh, instead of between red and yellow shirt, now the cleavage seems to be between the older and the younger generation mm. um, who envision two completely different versions of Thailand, right? And so the younger voters tend to vote for um, Move Forward because Move Forward has a lot of progressive policies, welfare um, system, better welfare system, um, and basically uh, uh, reducing the influence of the military, right? So that's really uh, striking at the heart of the elites. Now, um, the, the, the older generation, I, I would say that um, is less monolithic. Um, uh, there are those who uh, support Thai and they are considered as older generation, right? Because Thai represents this old politics in, in a way. This is oligarchic networks, uh, houses, um, political dynasties in the rural uh, part of Thailand. So they represent that kind of like actually the, 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 the majority of, of Thais who would vote for persons, for candidates. They like not so much about the party, but again, you know, this is changing. So so what happens is I think um, the, the, you know, the cleavage has changed. But at the same time, um, I think there are those who um, uh, stay in the middle um, and they are politically um, driven, to uh, ideologically driven to vote for parties, but they are, I think, more concerned about the economic situation, the inflation, um, everyday issues, livelihoods. So I think these are the majority of ties that now um, do not um get carried away by this you know polarization mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so some of your own research has focused on patterns of protest in the country recently um and again maybe our audience is most familiar with those red shirt yellow shirt protests um but actually uh around 2020 we saw a period of very different protest in the country especially centered on on youth um, can you tell us a little bit about what was different about those 2020 protests? It might have something to do with what you were just discussing, actually. Yeah, 
Um, I mean, definitely um, the, the protests in 2020 were primarily led by um, young people. We'll be talking about Gen Z. Um, and uh, I mean, they have, um, I mean, they conceive three different aspects when it comes to mass mobilization. Number one is tactics. Um, so they, they rely a lot on uh, social media as a platform for mobilization um, and basically shaping public discourse. Um, and therefore, the reliance on social media allows them to uh, gain traction, at least among their own generation and, you know, millennials, uh, people of my generation. So tactically speaking, they rely on digital tools a lot. Um, and that kind of uh, configure um, the decentralization mode of mass mobilization. So they they, they see themselves as, as nodes, as different um, cells that had the autonomy to do things by themselves. So as a result of that, you see like scattered protests everywhere and um, none of them, uh, sometimes not all of them are connected, right? Um, so they have their own goals and they have their own objectives. So that brings us to the second uh, difference from the um, the previous protest movements. Um, that's how that that is how uh, this young generation perceive as the goal of mass mobilization. So um, in the past, I think uh, you know we we tend to. Um, formulate goals of, of protest activism as something concrete, quite concrete, uh, policy changes, um, um, constitutional uh, amendment and government change, so on and so forth. I mean, these, these goals are still there, but I think there's a tendency towards discursive change, um, the desire to change uh, beliefs, norms, uh, cultures um, in Thailand, and therefore, you know, you have a lot of high school students uh, mobilizing against authoritarianism in schools. Um, and so, I mean, this is actually a cultural movement. Um, then lastly, um, I think the perception of politics um, is also different amongst this younger generation. Um, I mean, for my generation upward, um, or order <laughs> um was we see politics as um you know the, the politics of possibility basically it's normal to change alliances you form a broader coalition um and it doesn't matter if every groups in your coalition do not share um your beliefs or agendas right but i think for, for these young people for some reasons um it's difficult um i think the, the idea of politics as the uh, the possibility of change of of uh, uh, of forming coalition amongst diversity, I think this this is changing, and so I, I think they they rather stick with their own um, group people who share their ideology and and they believe that you know this this small group could drive the agenda. So I mean I'm not saying which one is worse or better, but I think this 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 is how um, the perception of politics of activism has changed.
Yeah, that's, that's super interesting. I mean, you, you've pointed out that some of these 2020 protests um, ultimately have found it difficult to sustain collective action. Obviously, it was a challenging period, the pandemic. I mean, it, all kinds of collective action was hard in that period. Um, can you give us a sense what you, you said these weren't movements that were seeking short term political goals necessarily, but what would you say has come out of that 2020 protest? Uh -huh. Is that, for instance, it, do we see the themes in social media that were activated in those protests re-emerging now in the election period leading up to this election or, or no? Is it sort of going in different directions now? The outcome is, is really mixed. Um, I think culturally speaking, um, the 2020 protest movements achieve um, a cultural change, right? Um, so basically they, they, they brought up the conversation about the monarchy and in Thailand it, it's a taboo, to talk about the monarchy, frankly. Um, so they, they, they did that, right? Um, and I think that after that, um, Thai society has never been the same again. Um, and now, I mean, what's so fascinating is, you know, during these campaign trails, there were a lot, there are a lot of like televised debates, right? Um, and this televised debates um, incorporated issues related to the monarchy in public debates, um, and that is unprecedented. And I think that is a direct legacy of the 2020 protest. Um, but I think um, politically speaking, um, it's still, I, I think that they, they, they want to see change faster, but Thai society is fundamentally conservative, right? Um, you have a lot of people who cannot imagine living in, uh, Thailand without uh, certain uh, uh, key institutions in the country. And so I think the change um, is, is ongoing, but it's, it's not fast at all. Um, and um, in addition to that, uh, the crackdown after uh, the protests uh, has been really intensifying and it actually um, undermined any future uh, mass mobilization. And so after 20... 20, um, there were actually uh, waves of major protests in 21, but then the, 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 the repression uh, has been very intense and that put down um, uh, a lot of uh, activists. So um, the mobilization, the subsequent mobilization could not gain the same traction as before. And I think a lot of people could see that Look, I mean, protests is, um, is, we would join protests if we don't have other avenues of political participation, but right now there's an election. So the traction has, has actually uh, significantly subsided. Hmm. Yeah, so you referenced the role of technology in, the, in those 2020 and 2021 protests. Um, and I think, you know, those of us who study um, democracy and its challenges these days are definitely aware of the fact that technology can also be a tool in the hands of, of authoritarian uh, rulers, uh, just as much as it can generate protest. Um, you know, in the Philippines, a place that I study pretty closely, uh, former President Duterte became a bit of an international poster boy, right, for using digital tools to rally support, but also to target opponents and spread misinformation. Um, in the Thai case, how has the uh, governing uh, coalition um, used digital tools to confront these protests, but also just more generally to sort of um, cement their own power? Um, I mean, 
when we talk about um, uh, when we talk about social media or on um, digital platforms, right? It's all about narratives. It's all about narrative control, narrative shaping, um, and I think uh, the the ruling elites have been quite um, savvy. Um, a lot of people would say that they are dull. I mean, their online campaigns are dull, but I, I disagree. I think they're quite savvy. Um, they basically uh, rely on three uh, three to four types of digital uh, methods to control and manipulate narratives online. Uh, one is influence operations, and they have like cyber troops, so to speak, um, tens of thousands of uh, conscripts within the army, and others that are uh, affiliated with uh, the ruling elites. Um, they they have like um, uh, the most uh, outspoken conservative out outlets that would day in and out uh, push the narratives against the opposition, so on and so forth. So that that's the narrative pushing, and um, the the other side of the same coin is is narrative control, right? So there's um, extensive use of cyber laws um, and in Thailand it's called Computer Crimes Act to um, stifle um, online dissent, right? And so um, the law has been um, extensively uh, used to charge activists. So you end up having um, ordinary people being to, uh, being um, being concerned about their posts, uh, uh, that uh, the authorities would charge them if they post something problematic online. I mean, all of this online dissent is still there, but the, the cost of um, online activism and online dissent has risen because of this, uh, the weaponization of these laws. And in between, you have, um, in the increasing reliance on um, spyware and surveillance technologies. Um, and, and I would even say that the data gathered through these um, surveillance technologies is um, the foundation for these other two forms of digital repression, right? Because basically you need data to understand what is being discussed online in order to interject uh, narratives and shape narratives, right? And you also need, need this big data to identify who the authorities could file charges against. Because I mean, you have like massive amount of online data. So you need really uh, uh, specific tools and monitoring uh, uh, citizens to do that job. And so like surveillance has been quite intense um, and this has uh, undergirded um, uh, narrative pushing and um, uh, the weaponization of cyber laws. Yeah, that's really fascinating. We just actually had um, Stephen Feldstein, who's a, a former State Department official. Do you know? Do you know? Yeah, Stephen? of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the leader of, of Digital Democracy Network, and I'm a part of the network. <laughs> there you go. Okay, very good. Well, he was a guest on this podcast, and we gave him a big award here at the university a few uh, oh, a few cool. weeks ago. Um, and so, yeah, this is a trend that's playing out not just in in Thailand, right, but more much uh, all over more the world. Yeah. 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 Um, I was wondering if maybe I could pivot to to one of those narratives um, that uh, that seems to be gaining more traction in the country recently, and ask for your thoughts related to Buddhist, uh, what you've called Buddhist majoritarian nationalism. Um, religion and politics is obviously always close to to my heart and my interest. 
Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by that term, Buddhist majoritarian nationalism? Um, how is it new and like what what's different about this from just the more general tradition of loyalty to the monarchy and loyalty loyalty to sort of traditional practices in the mm -hmm. country? Well, I mean, to begin with, Thailand and um, as a state is is actually a, a religious state. Um, a, a lot of people would disagree with that uh, claim, but I think that the the proximity of of Thailand and Buddhism has been there, but the broker of this proximity is the monarchy, right? So um, the, the Thai flag reflects these three pillars of the nation, the monarchy, the nation, and fundamentally means meaning the Thai nation and Buddhism, right? So, um, so that is a, uh, a foundation of the country, if you like, right? Now, um, that is, uh, I would say, royalist, uh, Buddhist nationalism. So it's um, with this nationalism spearheaded by the monarchy. Now, um, it's, it's difficult to kind of simplify all the complexities and, and political changes in the country, but I try my best and, and stop me if, you know, I'm, you know, making the audience confused. <laughs> um, so, so, so basically, um, because of this political contestation that we discussed before between uh, anti-establishment camp and the establishment camp. And what has sometimes been overlooked uh, in this political contestation is the religious aspect to that, right? Um, and so um, Buddhism has been a part of this political contestation. For example, when Thaksin was in power, he was trying to meddle in the appointment of the leadership of the Buddhist church. And that uh, has been traditionally the role of the monarchy, actually the king. <laughs> so, you know, that is one example of how uh, Buddhism is at the core of political contestation. Now, to answer your question, uh, what happened is that during this period of intense political contestation from 2010 until the coup, um, actually even before that, when Thaksin was in power, 2004, 2005, until the coup, um, the second coup in 2014, these 10 years, right? Um, the, the ruling elites, the establishment camp, try to uh, basically reclaim their authority um, in Buddhism. And so um, they, uh, they started to crack down on um, uh, Buddhist uh, factions within the Buddhist church that uh, were seen as allies of Thaksin, right? So that's one thing. Um, and there's also uh, the perception that the ruling elites always favor um, the, you know, the basically, there are two main orders within the Thai Buddhism. And the elites are, are seen as being so supportive of this other uh, very small elitist Buddhist order of the monks, right? So the, the, basically the elites, uh, royalist elites and there's monk elites, just to make it simple. And so these, these two are basically um, the, the ruling kind of uh, uh, structure of the uh, Buddhist church. Now, um, just to uh, um, uh, make this uh, fast forward, 
Um, so with, with that attempt of the elites to basically rearrange uh, uh, power within the Buddhist church, um, there emerge um, um, uh, movements to basically contest this purge, uh, contest this rearrangement of powers. And their um, main narrative is that Buddhism um, is the religion of the majority of Thais, and therefore, um, we should promote the version of Buddhism that is attached to uh, this majority of Thais. Basically, uh, Buddhism should correspond with um, the Thai livelihood um, and uh, 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 um, the, the Thai citizens, but not the monarchy. So the, I mean, the idea is to detach Buddhism from the monarchy and uh, shift that towards uh, grassroots uh, movements, right? So in, in a way, I, I think we will uh, in a bit uh, go to that question. So this is in a way uh, very similar to what happens in Myanmar and Sri Lanka, where um, uh, Buddhist monks are very politicized and play an active role in elections, in um, uh, policy making. So um, this, this part of uh, Buddhist movements envision that, right? Um, but whether or not they have achieved that goal, I, I, I would say it's, it's, it's something to be seen. Um, so far, they, they, they are quite marginal. Okay, yeah, I mean, do they do, do the Buddhist movements seem to be sort of learning from and having exchanges with um, monks from Myanmar or from Sri Lanka? Do you see that kind of Buddhist exchange going on? Mm. I mean, there, there, there are evidence um, about these um, informal exchanges, if mm -hmm. you like. Uh, for example, um, during uh, the purge um, caused the military coup in 2014, as I said, there was a major purge going on um, after the coup um, to get rid of Taksin allies. Um, basically, uh, when some of the monks were arrested, um, the monks in, in Myanmar issue a statement of solidarity, something mm. like that, right? Mm. So um, um, I think they inspire one another and the, um, the, the, the Buddhist um, actors that I interviewed, they, they look up to um, Buddhist movements um, in Sri Lanka and Myanmar. But I think in terms of formal um, association or, uh, you know, um, learning, um, not, not learning, learning, yes, but like being, being uh, having any formal uh, um, connection with these groups in Myanmar and Sri Lanka, I think is not there yet. Yeah. Um, and and I, I don't think that, I mean, right now the authorities really, um, monitor their movements and i mean because of this tension basically they want to break away with the royalist buddhist nationalism and that is quite alarming for the security agency so they've been monitoring these groups and i think that it it, it is very difficult for them to do anything formally with um uh, these other international groups Wow, that, that's super interesting. Yeah, I mean, I could talk about the details of clergy politics like all, <laughs> yeah. all night long. 
sorry, I, I don't know if I confuse the audience no, by my... Yeah, it's Actually, it's I mean, very complex, yeah. A lot of times people who, who don't sort of study religion and politics might assume that sort of all clergy agree when it comes to politics or they're all on the same oh, no, no. page, they, they're right? Really Power-driven. Yeah. <laughs> Understanding <laughs> disagreement is really important. Um, maybe we can wrap up um, by just sort of taking a step back and, and getting a sense of how you feel going into this election in, in just a couple of days um, about what the, the election might mean for polarization in the country. I mean, you've written before that the country um, is divided between worldviews that seek incompatible political orders um, there's obviously been a cycle of elections and coups and um, in all, political instability for 20 or 25 years now in, in the country. Um, what do you think as as we come into the final days of this campaign? Is there any prospect that this election might produce a result that helps to alleviate these divisions or sort of change Thai politics um, in a meaningful way? Mm, I mean, I'm both hopeful and dreadful. <laughs> Because this is the second election um, after the coup in 2014, right? And um, it, it is a turning point in a way that if we could um, pass this test and uh, basically have this election um, uh, carried out with all things intact, right? Basically, all party except the result of the election and the election commission does not intervene or the military does not intervene, so on and so forth. So if we if we pass this test, I think that is a good future for the Thai democracy. Again, but this is Thailand. We cannot be sure that there wouldn't be you know, uh, another military coup, but I think this is a very important turning point. Um, I, I am dreadful because of that, um, because a lot of things can go wrong. And right now there are a lot of concerning signs. Um, the election commission has uh, shown um, some signs that they could meddle in the election afterwards um and they did that last time right um and and um the military despite saying that you know this is strictly civilian affair they would not intervene but no you know no one believes in that <laughs> so um the scenario that i i discussed before if the two opposition parties form the governing coalition then the elites would be really concerned and that would actually um uh, you know contribute to various factors that the military could intervene so a lot of things can go wrong um and we, we not to mention that the opposition parties have large amount of supporters now and ties are very eager to see to say the least anxious, <laughs> you know, being very anxious to see change. Um, and I would say that the majority of Thais want a change of government, at least, um, not purely about ideology, but it's it's about the governance that has been so poor over the past eight years. The economy is doing really bad. So people want change. And if change is not delivered, I don't know what's going to happen um, on the streets. Yeah, well, that's why we're we're so grateful that you uh, took the time in these closing days to to talk with us, um, and uh, and we'll all be watching and and thinking of the best for uh, for your country in the in the coming weeks. So thanks so much to 
um, to you for joining us, um, and uh, and we'll we'll look forward to the the days ahead with uh, best hopes. Thank you. Thanks All for right. having me. Yeah, well, thanks again to, to Dr. Janzira Samba Punsuri for, for being with us. Um, and to our listeners, we've been so glad to be with you this year. Um, we are obviously coming up to a pause in the academic calendar. And so our episodes will be less frequent in the coming uh, weeks. But keep your eyes on the Center for Asian Democracies Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram accounts for updates. Uh, subscribe to the podcast on services like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And we will be back with more episodes and other events around the university and virtually before too long. Thank you very much.